Awesome. And if y'all waiting for me for clapping ability, y'all should have kept going. I am on time clap be challenged. All right. Hey, uh, in Matthew chapter five through seven, Jesus gives some incredible teaching about what it looks like to live in his kingdom, what it looks like to live in this new family that, that we are a part of. And then he concludes with these very familiar words. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. May God bless the reading of his word. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, God, we humbly, God, come into your presence and we recognize, Lord, that, that you are Lord of all. God, we recognize that you are the one who can take our lives, the mess of our lives, God, and that you can, that you can make something beautiful. And God, we realize that miracles can happen when your presence and your power and your spirit is a, allowed to move in our lives and our homes and our families. And so God, we, we set apart, we consecrate this time to you right now. We give you our hearts, our minds, our ears, our eyes that we may encounter you and we may encounter your truth. And, and God, our, our hope right now is based upon the power and the authority of your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to week three in our, in our series, Family Matters. It's a, it, it's a series of conversations where we're uh, uncovering biblical principles and, and, and meeting several families in the Bible, uh, principles and families that are intended to help our families become everything that God wants them to be. Now, in week one, we, we answered the question, where do we begin? And number one, when it comes the family, uh, when it comes to what our own individual roles are to look like and to be lived out, we begin with God and with God's word, what God says about the family. You see, when it comes to the family, God's word is the final authority. And number two, we begin with this shift a mindset, something we call mutual submission, where everybody in the family submits to one another, where we, we leverage our time, our assets, our resources for the benefit of each other, where our attitude is, hey, I'm here for you. I'm here for your benefit, not mine. What can I do to help? And, and then last week, we talked about seven ingredients that if you put them into your families, they will work. They're the chocolate, they're the sugar, of the family. They are guaranteed, if you put them in, to have a positive impact on your family. That is, if you obey God's teaching and you build your family on the rock of his word, these ingredients will work. And they are acceptance, attention, appreciation, adjustment, affection, amnesty, and almighty God. And listen, a family, a marriage that puts these seven things in them, in their family, though the rains come in torrents, though the floodwaters rage, though the winds beat against that family, that family will not collapse. Amen? 
Amen? Amen. So, did you put any of these ingredients into your family last week? Did you, did you work on it any? If so, awesome. If not, why not? But guess what? It's another new day, right? It's a new week. And did you do your appreciation homework? Where are you going to write down all the things you appreciate about the individual members of your family? Now, I did step one. I wrote all the things down, but I was away in New York City all last week at the Emotional Healthy Leadership Conference. Oh, my goodness, what a time that was. Crazy. I mean, I got to worship with 350 brothers and sisters from around the globe, 17 different countries, 26 different states. I got to talk to some good brothers from, from Bulgaria and, and uh, a husband and wife from Norway, some guys from Philippines and Korea and, and from Canada. It was an incredible time. And I, I just want you to know that, that emotional health, it's on the way. It's coming, right? We're going to be a church that's going to be emotionally healthy. And so just stay tuned. It was a great time. Um, but I got to do step two where I actually got to Pick a time with my family to read those things out. Okay, and the final thing to review, remember, the, the most important thing you can do for your family. Walk closer to God. You walk closer to God. That is the number one thing that you can do for your family, is for you to walk closer to God. Now, this morning, our, our conversation is about singleness and finding our soulmate. And now why a conversation about singleness in a series about family? Because almost every family has a single person in it, and every family began with a single person looking for their soulmate. And understand, the process they used, whatever it was, led to the person they chose, which plays a major role in why they are where they are today. Singleness and finding your soulmate. Let's do this. Hey, check out some of the statistics about being single. There are 100 million unmarried adults in the USA over the age of 18 right now. 61% have never been married. 24% are divorced. 15% are widowed. In 1950, 4 million people lived alone, 9% of all households. Today, 33 million people live alone, 28% of all households. Here's a couple of graphs that I think are pretty cool, at least to me. All right, Current marital status, you can see there right? Uh, 28% have never been married. Uh, 6% are widowed. 14% are divorced. That's 48%. Nearly half of all adults in our country are single. And that's why it's important to talk about singleness. Check out this next graph. Uh, Of those who are single, you know, 12% don't want to get married. 20%, not sure. And 61% want to get married. And that's why it's important to talk about God's way of finding your soulmate. Okay, raise your hand if you know somebody who's single over the age of 18, or you are single over the age of 18. All right, I think every hand's probably up, right? So everybody needs to pay attention. And first, I I want to talk about singleness and, and, and what God says about it. You know that begin with God thing? And listen, when we begin with God and we look at the New Testament today, it's going to cause us to rethink singleness. Turn to the person to your right and left and say, rethink. 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 And and, and then I I want to wrap up by talking about a few of the do's and don'ts in finding our soulmate. 
And Samson's family is going to be our guide, and they, they, didn't, they didn't do so good. Okay, singleness, point number one, singleness can be hard. I, I put the fallen post on my Facebook wall Thursday morning. What was or is the most difficult thing about being single? And here, here are some of the responses. Breaking through the loneliness barrier, one person said. Another person said loneliness, which can lead to so many other negative things, feeling depressed, unloved, nobody cares about me, just so many hurtful feelings. Another wrote, I said the most difficult thing is having everyone around you treat your singleness like it's a problem. And they look at you and try to take it upon themselves to fix it like, oh, I met this guy, I think you'll like him, or he's cute, isn't he? You should talk to him. And the worst part is, you know they mean well, so you try not to hurt or offend them, but it still, still somehow comes across like they think something is wrong with you because you're, you've been single for most of your life. For me personally, I find comfort in my singleness because I'm all I need to worry about. But when people look at that and see a problem that needs fixing, that's what makes it hard. Someone else said society's expectation and pressure from other people that think an ideal or successful Christian woman is married, stay-at-home mother, Oftentimes it feels that people define your value and worth by your relationship status. It is less about personal desire to be in a relationship and more about how others see me because I'm not in one. Another wrote, I struggle with an extreme amount of loneliness. It gets emotionally very taxing to watch all of your friends get married off. Your social life dwindle because your friends have spouses and families taking up most of their time and you're left wondering where your partner is. That's the hardest part. Someone wrote, the hardest thing about being single has to be from Day one, you're taught that your future spouse is going to be your other half, which seems implied that you're only half a person when you're single. This cannot be further from the truth. No, no matter how many times I tell people that I'm not looking for a relationship, they usually reply with, well, you're still young. I cannot even say enough how difficult it is to feel like a human being when everyone seems to think you're missing something crucial. Church is where you come to find support in the decisions you make to grow closer to God. But when it comes to choosing the single life, you don't often find that support. And then they write, thank you for choosing this topic. That's some strong emotions. And you see the common theme besides the theme of loneliness would be uh, the fact that you know, there's something wrong, right? That somehow you're not a real person, a full, complete person if you're single. I've always liked a comment my wife Laurie made several years back about singleness. She said, singleness is biblical, not a curse. The church does not embrace this or preach about it. I think Paul would be greatly disappointed. Yes, being single can be hard. And part of the reason, if not the main reason, is because we have been taught, programmed, and influenced to think wrong about singleness, and that is why we need to rethink it. The next point is both marriage and singleness are good. They're both good. Paul, who, by the way, was single talks about singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says this in verse 8, I wish everyone were single just as I am, yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. And then he begins several verses to talk about marriage, and then he jumps back into the discussion about singleness a few verses down, and he says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who's no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. 
But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do what will ever help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. Now, let's be honest. If if Paul, this older single leader, were here today, many people think it's a little bit odd. I mean, I, I could just hear the conversations that people drank coffee before and after church. Why is he still single? Is it his looks? Are his standards too high? Is he socially awkward? There has to be something wrong with him. I wonder what it is. And brothers and sisters, that kind of thinking is not only problematic, it also shows that we're reflecting in our minds more of what the world says about singleness and marriage than what the Word says. Like I said, we need to rethink singleness. Understand, according to the New Testament, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and what Jesus says in Matthew 19, both singleness and marriage are good. You see, right after teaching about marriage and response to the Pharisees' question and how Jesus said that marriage is supposed to be permanent, his, his disciples came and asked him a question. If this is a situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, Jesus, if marriage is that tough, maybe it would be better if we stayed single. And Jesus, I, I think to their surprise, is like, yeah, you're right. Uh, being single is a very good thing, but not everybody is able to pull it off. And then Jesus says this in Matthew 19. Jesus answered, everyone can accept this teaching, but God has made some able to accept it. There are different reasons why some men cannot marry. Some men were born without the ability to become fathers. Others were made that way later in life by other people. And some men have given up marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. But the person who can marry should accept this teaching about marriage. Again, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, Jesus saying that not only is it okay to be single, but that it is a good thing to be single. And listen, the idea that singleness being good, the idea of singleness being good was an extremely radical concept for those who first heard Jesus and Paul say this stuff. And in some ways it's, uh, you know, saying that the single life is a, a good life is still a radical concept today. I understand nearly all ancient cultures and ancient religions, including Judaism, place the absolute value on marriage, family, and having children. To them, there was no honor without family and no lasting legacy with, without having descendants. And in fact, in their eyes, without children, you essentially vanish. You had no future. Therefore, long-term single adults were considered to be living a human life that was less than those who were married. In fact, some rabbis taught that if you were still single after the age of 20, that you were actually committing a sin. Understand, back then, the pressure from from family, from culture, and from religion to marry was enormous. And I don't know if it's changed all that much. And that is why Jesus and Paul's teaching about singleness and it being good was so radical, even for God's people. Question, in the Old Testament, how, how did God's people expand primary through having what descendants be fruitful and multiply therefore those in the old testament like hannah rachel and sarah as well as their family and friends 
viewed not being able to have children as a curse. So singleness, the Old Testament, was for the most part unwanted and undesired. But then Jesus, the perfect man, a single guy, um, comes bursting onto the scene, ushering in the kingdom of God, whose coming was announced by another single guy by the name of John the Baptist, whose kingdom was expanded through the teaching of another single guy by the name of Paul. I understand, Jesus and Paul, through their lives and their teaching for the first time, hold up single adulthood as an acceptable way to live. Again, how do God's people expand in the Old Testament? Primarily through physical reproduction. How does God's kingdom expand in the New Testament? Not through physical birth, but through spiritual birth. Being born again of water and spirit. Through spiritual reproduction. Understand, in the church, in the kingdom Jesus established 2,000 years ago, uh, we go from be fruitful and multiply and have many descendants to making disciples of all nations and bringing all people into the new family of God. Bottom line, both singleness and marriage are good. And therefore, to exalt one over the other is wrong. I mean, to say that To say that marriage is more holy than being single or to say that being single is more holy than being married, both are wrong and both are unbiblical. Get it? Good. Uh, Next, both marriage and singleness portray the gospel. Now, 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 most of us know and can easily see how marriage is a picture, a portrait of the gospel, how it's a picture of Christ's commitment and sacrificial love for the church. As seen in a husband, sacrificial love and commitment to his wife. And in the picture of, of the church's submission to Christ, as seen in the wife's love and respect to her husband. Yes, marriage is an awesome picture of the gospel. And listen, if you hear that and you're single, you may be thinking, hey, I, I, want, I, I want my life to portray the gospel. Uh, I, I mean... Does being single mean that I will never be able to have opportunity for my life to be a picture of the gospel? And, and listen, if, if you're single, never married, divorced, widowed, and, and you want your life to be a picture of the gospel, you're in the right place at the right time. Because God has also designed singleness to be a picture of the gospel. In a way that's different than marriage, but in a very powerful way. Actually, two powerful ways. First, singleness pictures the Christian's ultimate identity in Christ. Now the world and misinformed Christians would say that you need a husband or a wife to be complete, to be whole. Remember, that was, that's the prevailing theme of most of the comments on my Facebook page, right? And sad, right? Sad in the church, right? We're going like, to make a, a person feel less, right, because you, you're single. Like, oh, yeah, well, you're a little bit less, but you can move up front once you get married, but you can be in the back when you're single, right? However, the gospel reminds us that this kind of thinking is simply not true. Because in Christ, regardless of our marital status, we are fully, completely whole. In Christ, regardless of our marital status, we are fully and completely whole. I understand that there, there is a, there's a significance, a sufficiency, and a satisfaction in Christ 
There is a sufficiency, a satisfaction, a significance in Christ that far exceeds what any man or woman could ever hope to bring to the table. And listen, through singleness, a Jesus follower proclaims a message to the watching world that a husband or a wife, though awesome, are not necessary and are not essential to them being whole and complete. They're proclaiming a message to the watching world, right? That visibly demonstrates in a way that marriage cannot, at least not to the same degree, that Christ is enough. That, 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 that Jesus really is all I need for significance, for satisfaction, and Jesus is all that I really need to be complete and to be whole. This is good stuff. This is biblical. What a powerful picture of the gospel a single Jesus follower proclaims. In Christ alone, I have everything I want. I have everything that I need. Second, singleness pictures the Christian's eternal identification with the church. You say, well, when it comes to singleness, well, what about Genesis 2.18? It's not good for man to be alone. And yes, that's true. But listen, the picture that God has designed in the church is to show us that in his kingdom, that in his church, no man, no woman is ever alone. That we, that we are a family together, surrounded completely by countless brothers and sisters. That our relationship with each other in Christ are far more permanent than even the physical relationship of marriage. I like what John Piper says. He's, relationships based on family are what? Temporary. But relationships based on Christ are eternal. And listen, that, that's not to put down marriage, right? I love marriage. I, I've been married for almost 37 years. Marriage is great and awesome. But, but that's intended to bring us back to the reality that only spiritual relationships in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ last forever. I understand a, a, a phenomenal 60-year marriage here is not that long in light of forever. And remember, in heaven, according to Jesus, there is no marriage. Jesus said marriage is for people here on earth. Good thing. Enjoy it. But in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will what? Neither marry nor be given in marriage. You see, in heaven singleness will be applied to everybody. As together we wed to Christ, the Lamb of God, our awesome bridegroom. Get it? Good. Again, singleness pictures the Christian's eternal identification with the church as their forever family. You see, regardless of the culture or, or your family of origin, right, you're a part of a new family. As Jesus followers, we are part of a new family, the family of God. And, and Jesus said this in Mark 10, I assure you that everyone who is giving up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property. Next, both marriage and singleness are gifts. Paul says, I wish everyone were single just as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has, this, one has this gift, one another. 
which begs the question, just who has the gift and how do you know? I mean, when it comes to signalness, some people seem to delight in the gift and, and others maybe seem to be frustrated by it. Now, there's basically two schools of thought in regards to this. You know, number one, some people believe that some people are given an actual spiritual gift to be single. Another point of view is this, that whatever state you find yourself in, whether married or single, it's a gift. I, I tend to lean towards number two. Because I, I don't think Paul's point in, in 1 Corinthians 7 is about whether you're single or married. Instead, I think his point is that, hey, is whether or not we are trusting in God right now, right? His point is whether or not in our marriedness or our singleness, are we trusting in God and are we portraying and painting a picture of God's gospel with our lives? Next, both marriage and singleness are for God's glory. They both have unique challenges, opportunities, unique rewards. However, the ultimate issue is not whether or not you are married or single, but rather, how are you responding to it? And if you are living out your marriedness or your singleness for the glory of God, that's the ultimate issue. Not whether you're married or single, but are you living out of your singleness? Are you living out of your marriage in a way that brings glory to God? Bottom line, to those who are married, God says, don't waste your marriage. It's a gift. Use it to paint a picture of the gospel. And, and to those who are single, God says, don't waste your singleness. It's a gift. Use it to maximize and paint a picture of my glory. Get it? Good. All right, so let's be a church that honors singleness, all right? And let's refrain from thinking that this person, your son or daughter or friend, hey, wow, somehow if I could hook you up with somebody, your life's going to be a whole lot better and you'll be a more complete person, right? Let's be biblical. Let's rethink singleness. Now let's talk about finding your soulmate, which is kind of important because there's 100 million people who aren't married. 61 of them would like to get married. And I say what a great opportunity today is for people in this room to get it right if you're single. What a great opportunity for us who know single people, parents, right, to help them get it right. Because the truth is there's something worse than being single and wishing you were married, and that's being married and wishing you were single. And, and that's not a punchline for a joke. That's a, that's a painful reality for far too many people. And what I want to do now is, is look at some of the do's and don'ts of searching for your soulmate using Sanson's family as their guide. Now, Sanson lived around 3,000 years ago during a 300-year period between the time when God's people through Joshua conquered the promised land and they got their first king. And it was a, this say it was messed up as an understatement. Here, here was the philosophy of that time. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know, may that never be said of me. May that never be said of you, that you have no king, and you did whatever you wanted to do. <laughs> whatever was right in your eyes. And, and the cliff notes of the story is this, is his mom and dad, Manoah and Zorah, they tried for years to have 
children, but they were unsuccessful. Then one day God shows up and tells them, hey, you're going to have a son and not just any son, a very special son. He's going to deliver God's people from the Philistines. And he will take a very special vow, a Nazarite vow to show his commitment to the God who was not to eat grapes, drink fruit, drink wine. He was not to cut his hair. He was not to touch a dead body. Again, a few do's and don'ts from Samson's family. Judges 14, 1 through 3. Like they're all right here. <laughs> Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman who caught his eye. When he turned home, he told his father and mother, a, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. His, his father and mother objected. They're a bunch of weenies apparently. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry, they asked. Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, Get her for me. She looked good to me, right? And, and, and so some do's and don'ts, finding your soulmate. Number one, don't go to the wrong place or places. It says Samson went down to Timnah. It was about four or five miles away. Samson lived in the hill country. Timnah was down below in Philistine territory. I'm saying when it says that he goes down to Timnah, it's telling us something not just about his geographical direction, but his spiritual direction. You see, God had made it very clear that his people, the Israelites, were not to intermarry with people like the Philistines. They worshiped false gods. They worshiped the god of fertility, the god of sex. They, they had temple prostitutes, and, and the Philistine women were known for their pro- provocative dress. And listen, Sansom, a guy probably in his mid-20s, knows all of that, yet he still makes his way down the Timnah. He looks in the wrong places. I don't know why he went there. I mean, maybe he went there to give himself some more options. I mean, maybe he was uh, looking around his youth group or singles group and there wasn't uh, many fish in the pond. And he thought, hey, let me, let me expand my opportunities. Or, or maybe he felt like this 23-year-old girl named Cindy felt when she expressed the following to a, a reporter at a bar. I hate this place. I hate having to wait in line to get in. I hate the way the guys look you up and down when you walk in. And I hate the guys who look you in the eyes five minutes after meeting you and ask your place or mine. But I come here every Friday night holding out hope of meeting a few dateable men. And that's the frustrations that many singles feel because they've started looking past the boundaries God has established to increase their opportunities. And yet God has established the same boundaries for us today as he's established for his people in the Old Testament. See, for a Jesus follower, we're not to marry anybody who's not a Jesus follower. Paul said, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, yoked is what would hook two oxen together, right? You know, you know and, and to them, it's a vivid image, right? It'd really be insane to get two oxen, yoke them together, and send them off in different directions to plow the same field, right? It's like not going to work, right? Not going to work. It'd be insane to try to do that. And the point is, when we connect, when we commit our life to someone in marriage, we need to make sure that we're going in the same direction, that we're committed to the same things. And listen, since dating can lead to marriage, it's probably not a good idea to date a non-believer, right? You don't usually marry someone you've never dated, right? Yeah, missionary dating can work. Sometimes, but it can blow up and blow up for decades. 
You see, it's hard for someone to be your soulmate if they haven't given their souls to Jesus. It, it would be like trying to, to build a house with two different sets of blueprints. You couldn't, you couldn't agree on foundational issues. How, 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 do we, how do we raise our kids? How, how do we deal with conflict, right? How do we handle our finances? What role does church and, and, and family uh, play in our lives? Don't go to the wrong places. It's kind of like if you're wanting to start a really healthy diet, don't eat every meal at McDonald's. Not not putting down McDonald's because their fries are the best, right? And I got to have some every now and then, right? I'm not ding on McDonald's. And their 50-cent ice cream cones cannot be beat. They're awesome, right? But, but, but McDonald's can satisfy immediate hunger, but it's not good for long-term health, right? Don't go to the wrong places. Don't look for the wrong things. Get her for me. She looked good, right? And he was totally caught up in physical attraction. He was infatuated with her parents. And now, now I'm not saying that there shouldn't be an attraction. I, I mean, I, I would totally be lying if, if I said the only thing that attracted me to my wife, Laurie, was her love for God and her totally sold-out commitment to his church. No, to me, she was and is the most beautiful female walking on the face of this planet. But there needs to be more than that especially if you're looking for a lifelong partner. Bottom line, if you're a Jesus follower, one of the first questions you should ask the person of interest is, do you go to church and are you faithful in your walk with and for Jesus? Again, extremely important when you're talking about a lifelong partner. It's not just that they look good or say the right things. You need to see their faith lived out in their life. Samson looked for the wrong things, physical appearance, passion, and chemistry. And let's be honest, you can feel passion with someone you barely even know. Like that, that song from back in my day, hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? All right, seriously, you like in love, you don't even know their name, that's kind of crazy. And, and if we can feel passion and chemistry with someone we just met over the weekend, are they really the best criteria for a life of commitment? I don't think so. And by the way, that's the real danger in becoming physically intimate too soon because we'll mistake passion right and think that means that we actually love that person and know that person you know I think a great idea if you're single looking for your soulmate is to make a list of what you're looking for and maybe this should be on your list for the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, have that list and just look at that person. Joy. I mean, are they full of joy? Or is the person, are they depressed a lot, in a bad mood, always cranky? Are they grateful? Are they content? How about peace? Are they always stressed out? Are they always anxious? Always on edge? How about goodness and kindness? I mean, do you see them doing good and kind things for other people? Right? How do they treat the server at the you know, at the restaurant who overcooks their steak three times, right? How about self-control? I mean, how, how does this person, how do they handle their tongue? How do they handle their finances? How do they handle their sex drive? Listen, see, you need to l look past their appearance and see who they really are, not just what they look like, not just the image. Come on, we all know that, right? <laughs> you know, not just the image they are trying to portray. See, using surface and superficial criteria leads to single people, A, 
Zeroing in on people they should be avoiding. (laughs) And B, right, it, it leads to them excluding people, right, because maybe they're not that impressive. They don't project that great of an image at first. Excluding people who would be a great fit and a great partner for life. Get it? Good. Uh, don't compromise your walk with God. That's what Samson did, right? The, the minute he went down to Timnah, one compromise after another, after another, after another. Before long, he finds himself doing things, going places he never, ever imagined he would ever do. Understand, when we are not honoring God in our most significant earthly relationships, it becomes very difficult to honor God in any other area. When we are not honoring God in our most significant earthly relationship, it becomes very difficult to honor God in any other area. Sure, sure. Understand, you can't, though you try and though you would like to, compartmentalize your faith. You can't say, well, I I will honor God in this area of my life, but not here, and because I'm a little desperate, and this is what I want to do. I want to do things my way. But just in this area, everywhere else, God can't do that. It, It doesn't work that way. Because disobedience in one area has a way of seeping into every area. Disobedience in one area has a way of seeping into to every area. Sam said he looked in the wrong places. He looked for the wrong things and he compromised his walk with the Lord. And here's the bottom line. The all-important question. When you're looking for your soulmate, does this person make your walk with God better or worse? Are you closer with God because of them or further away from God? You know, does eating Doritos and Oreos all the time make your health better or worse? If it makes it worse, put them back on the shelf. And some of you maybe need to put somebody back on the shelf, right? Put them back on the shelf. They ain't working. They're not working for you, right? Or maybe you know somebody, a single who's dating somebody, and you can see what those Doritos are doing to them, right? Hey, you need to put that joker back on the shelf, right? Put them back. Put them back. Put them back now. Don't wait. The Holy Spirit's telling you put them on the shelf. That's the Holy Spirit. Just do it. That makes some people mad. That's all right. And listen, the number one area where most singles compromise with God when it comes to finding their soulmate is the area of sexual purity. See, God has made it clear in his word. And God's word is the authority of our church, every church, whether they acknowledge it or not. And God has made it extremely clear that sex is reserved for a husband and a wife within the commitment of a marriage, period. 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 And anything that does not fall under that umbrella is sin. And it's disobedience to God. If you're not married to him, keep your hands off, right? It ain't your wife yet. It's not your husband yet. It could be somebody else's, and they really wouldn't like that very much. You see, in God's great love for us, he knows what's best. And I know that's not very PC, right, politically correct, or popular. And I know we can rationalize it. Well, we're in 
We're engaged. We're going to get married in three years. Just haven't set the date yet. Everybody else is doing it. But listen, if you want God's best for your life, if you're going to live obediently towards him, that includes the area of sexual purity. Hebrews, 11, Hebrews 13, 4 says, Honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. Guard it. That's where it's supposed to be. And it's awesome and amazing and a beautiful thing. And if you ever messed up sexual purity, I'm here to tell you, God's grace can cover it and your new sexual purity can begin today. Amen? Right? His grace is enough. His grace is enough. It's a new day. I remember hearing Jace Robertson from Duck Dynasty at a conference one time. You know, he, he, he got, you know, he was a virgin when he got married and, and took a lot of heat for it. And, and he said, hey, he, he, like you could care less. He says, I got a cool looking beard. I don't care what you think. And I got a gun, right? I'll shoot you. Um, and I'll call ducks and I'll just poop on your head or something. But, but he said this, and I thought this is so good. He said, hey, I don't really care. Because you know what? Staying pure till I was married meant that I had a relationship that was disease-free, guilt-free, and comparison-free. Talk about a trifecta, huh? Disease-free, guilt-free, and comparison-free. Again, the all-important question of your soulmate, are they drawing you closer to God or further away from God? If they're drawing you further away from God, dump them or dump her, right? Just dump them. Put them on the shelf. They're Doritos, nasty Doritos. I like Doritos, but these had gone bad, nasty. Uh, yeah, we're about to wrap up. Uh, do change your approach. Have you ever heard of the right person myth? If I just meet and marry the right person, everything will be straight. And the myth is not that the right person is out there, but the myth is that when you find the right person, everything just magically works out, right? With little, little no effort. But the problem is, with this approach, is the other person is doing the same thing. Well, I don't have to be good at relationships because when I meet the right person, everything will work out just perfectly. And how we know it's the right person? Chemistry, passion, which I already said are terrible criteria for lifelong commitment. You see, a lot of times people don't have marriage problems. What they have is single people problems that combined in marriage. And that's why you need to change your approach and shift from finding the right person to becoming the right person. Now, now when you open the Bible, you know, you know, looking for how do I find the right person, right? It's kind of hard to find. But when you read the Bible about how to become the right kind of person, right? I mean, Scripture just lights up. You know, and a good place to look to see the kind of person you should become to make a relationship work, you know it. First Corinthians 13. Become this kind of person. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, 
but rejoices with truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So do change your attitude from finding the right person to becoming the right person. And this last one's going to be super, super, super quick. Do change your attitude. Do change your attitude. Your marriage is not your salvation. Your children are not your salvation. Let me tell you, if you think somehow finding the right person is going to be your salvation, you are in for a world of disappointment and you will be heaping expectations on them that they will never be able to carry across the threshold. Jesus is your salvation, right? In Christ alone is your salvation. Don't, don't be looking to, for someone to save you other than the one who's already saved you by his broken body and his shed blood. Would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we love you. And, and God, we thank you for this opportunity, God. And I, I lift up every single person in this room, God. And God, uh, I, I pray that your church, God, and we repent as a church in any way that if we have made them feel like second-class Jesus followers, that we put pressure on them, God, that somehow they had to be in a relationship, God, maybe even forcing them into ones that, we're not right for them just so that we thought they were doing what we thought they should do and culture said they should do. And God, I pray that every single person realizes that right now where they are, whether they're divorced, whether, God, they're widowed, God, whether they uh, have never been married, God, that they will, God, that they will realize that they can portray your gospel through their life. And that singleness is good and it's a gift and it can bring you glory. And God, I, I, I pray for those in this room, God, are just hurting. And those who have bought into the lie that salvation can be found in a job or in a career, in the applause of people. And Lord, we know that it's in you and you alone that we find our salvation. Do change all our attitudes. In Christ alone, we hope. Amen.